Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. So if you have a Bible, open it up. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we will um, get one to you. Luke chapter 14, what I want to do this morning is read from verse 1, back up from verse 1 all the way down to verse 14. So I'll give you a moment to get there. And then it's, it's on. Alright, Luke chapter 14 verses 1 through 14. Let's read, I'll pray, and then we'll dive in. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Let's pray. God, I was praying with the brothers in the back and every text that I'm given to teach, I inevitably feel the weight of falling short of it. But this morning, I I feel that uh, perhaps more than ever. I mean, who can live like this? Inviting into our home, around our table, those who only take and never reciprocate. Those who need and have nothing to offer. Those who bring burdens, but not much else. God, it explodes the normal equation we usually work with, it completely flips 
the way we typically approach relationships. And it humbles me to the ground because I don't see it in my life the way that I want. But what I love about you, Jesus, is you're not only the high standard, the holy and perfect standard. (laughs) You're also the way. You're not um, the standard of perfection and you doesn't crush us. You actually come towards us and help us attain it and help us grow. And so I know those of us in this room uh, that want to be more like you, Jesus. We, we need your help, and I know that you're ready and willing. I pray that we would see you come towards us in the way that you're calling us to move towards others. That we would be fed, that we would be ministered to by you so that we could go out and overflow on others. Jesus, I pray for any in this room who may not know Christ, who may not know you, who may not know what it means to be a part of your people. Maybe there have been bad experiences in churches in the past. There's a bad taste in the mouth. God, I pray the, the, the profound vision that you cast for your kingdom, grace overflowing, I pray it'd be compelling and alluring. There's no other kingdom like yours. So God, would you give me the ability this morning to communicate your heart to your people for your glory and their good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Imagine with me, let's go on a journey from the uh, front door of your house to your mailbox. <laughs> uh, maybe your mailbox, like mine, is just you reach from the front door and you got it. Maybe it's out uh, along the street. Uh, for the sake of my illustration, let's say we got to go on this walk. Here we go. We're walking out to the mailbox uh, along the street. We open it up and we start shuffling through the um, papers and things, the envelopes and things that are there. You've got your typical junk mail that you know is just going to go straight into the recycle bin. You've got some of those bills that you wish you could put into the recycle bin, but you know you have to open up and deal with. And then to your delight or perhaps despair, you find another envelope in there. uh, Open it up. And it's an invitation. Somebody's invited you to a party or uh, some sort of dinner or some sort of event that's going on. They want you there. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to freeze the frame for a moment. I want to pause and slowly step through what happens in your heart when you hold that invitation. When you're kind of looking at the details and you're uh, investigating things, here's what I want to know. Here's what we're trying to decide, and I want to know what criteria we have. We're trying to decide, will I accept or not? Am I going to go to this or not? Am I going to RSVP for this or not? And I want to get underneath a little bit of that and go, what happens in our hearts in those moments? Because we do it almost intuitively, instinctively. We're making these decisions and we're deciding what we're going to do or not. And I'm going to know what's happening under there. What 
is it? How do we decide if we will accept this invitation or not? Um, certainly there are some of those normal concerns that you might consider, like, uh, will this even fit in my schedule? How does this align with my priorities and my responsibilities? Or uh, will there be someone to watch my kids at this event? Who's going to take care? Will I have to line up childcare in order to go? These are the sorts of things you might think of at a more superficial level. But then there's something that happens underneath even that, right? Sometimes, if we're honest, a little bit more sinister. A little bit more selfish, a little bit more kind of don't want to let this part out, but it's going on. What's the the criteria there underneath? Oftentimes, isn't it things like this? Who's throwing the party? Whose party is this, number one? And do I even like them? Is this, uh, is this the sort of person that I actually would even want to hang out with? Or do I kind of have this ongoing beef with this person? I'm not sure I really want to go. Or you start looking through, well, what are the details here? Is there going to be any food <laughs> in this party for me? Or what are the events? Are they going to be entertaining me here? Is there going to be something going on that's going to be nice? In other words, though we would never probably say it, what's happening underneath in our hearts is, is, is this. What's in it for me? We kind of weigh the pros, we weigh the cons. If the pros outweigh the cons, well then maybe we'll RSVP and off we go. But if it doesn't seem like there's all that much to offer us in this, then maybe we'll just toss that one as well into the recycle bin, right? Maybe next year, maybe next time. Now, flip it for me. Um, Let's reverse the image. And come at it from another direction. Now it's not you've received invitations in the mail to someone else's party. But it's you are throwing the party. And you are now having to think through who's going to be on your guest list. Who's going to get the invitations? To whom are you going to extend these? You're the one stuffing the envelopes and writing the addresses on, on the front and putting things in the mail. And here again, it's the same sort of thing. So I'm not going to belabor the point, but there is kind of a, a more superficial, just kind of normal uh, list of concerns and criteria that we kind of think through. But then there's something else, right? Some of the more superficial things might be, well, what can my budget handle? How can I, you know, how many can I actually invite? How many people can my household, if it's at my house, I gotta kinda limit there, and so we'll have to think about who, uh, well, we gotta do family, right? We don't wanna, if we invite one family member, we gotta invite all of them, cause then we'll offend this or that person, right? Have you ever done a wedding like that? We're like, where do we stop? How do we do this? But there's those sorts of concerns at one level, but then underneath again, here it comes. Well, let me think about this. Who do I actually like? Who kind of, you know, who do I have a good give and take with? Oh, that person, man, I invite them. They never get back to me. They never get, you know, give me the reciprocation. It's always just one way. Forget that. They don't, 
They don't appreciate it. They won't appreciate the party, I'm sure. We'll keep them off the list. Or who, who by being at my party or being around my table will add something to my image? Oh, if I could just get the cool kid in school to come over to this, man, then I would be in. You know, that, that would be good for me. In other words, it's the same sort of junk that's going on. As with the way we go about accepting invitations, so too now with the way we go about extending them. It's gross. It's blatantly unchristian. It's self-oriented. And yet, if we're honest, we all to one degree or another do it. We operate in this way. And Jesus, you might wonder where I'm going with this. Hopefully you saw it in the text. But if you didn't, Jesus in our text is putting his finger on this very stuff that goes on in our hearts and makes its way out in the way we handle invitations and dinner parties. And he says, we're going to have to deal with this. We're going to start a revolution there. We need to change things there. So this morning we're going to look at three things in particular uh, you see it there on your handout. But number one, accepting invitations. Uh, number two, extending invitations. And number three, learning the way of Jesus. Jesus, help us, please. So let's get started. Um, there is, the reason why I, I read the whole text, verse, verses 1 through 14, even though I know we've looked at verses 1 through about 11 or whatever in the weeks prior, uh, is because there was a, there's a little detail back in verse 1 that captivated me, and I hadn't been able to kind of let it go, and it found its way, or maybe I found a way, to get it back into uh, the message here this morning, and uh, I want to put it now under this, it's where I'm getting this idea of accepting invitations. Um, but let me read verse 1 again to you, and then I'll show you what got my attention. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, stop. That's what got me. And I'll show you what I mean. Those of us familiar with the Gospels um, and Jesus' ministry, one of the things we so appreciate, one of the things we've come to know through the years, one of the things we probably love about Jesus and what he does and what he champions, what he stands for, is that, is that he's always spending his time kind of going after, hanging out with the, the outcast, the loser, the broken, the needy, the poor, the, even the flagrant sinner. We love that about Jesus because we kind of know that's where we are too. And it's, it's this amazing thing. He's this countercultural figure in history. I mean, if you ever wanted a rebel, Jesus is the one. We love that. We go, yes, this is great. Uh, we see this sort of thing all over the, the Gospels, but you might think of where we've seen it already, even in Luke's Gospel, like the one that immediately jumped to my mind was Levi in Luke 5, where uh, this guy's a tax collector, which... Uh, was just like a step above scum in ancient Israel there. And, and, uh, he, when he encounters Jesus, Levi, he, he 
ends up going, man, he's so moved by uh, our Savior that he extends an invitation to him. He decides, hey, I'm going to throw a party at my house. I'm going to invite all my tax collector friends. Jesus, will you be the guest of honor? And Jesus doesn't even hesitate. Though most of Israel would not even associate with such people. Jesus walks right in and feels at home around the table with them. Morally questionable. But he's there for them. And then of course we know there's conflict that surrounds all of this, right? So even in Luke 5, the the Pharisees and the scribes are outside the house and they're grumbling. They're going, look at this. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? To them, it's evidence that he could not be the Messiah because he's hanging out with such morally questionable people. Well, then surely his morals are questionable as well. But Jesus responds to them. This is Luke 5, verses 31 to 32. Some of the perhaps most beautiful words in all the Gospels. He says this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They can't get over the fact that he's eating with these sorts of people. And he says, listen, they're the kinds of people I've come for. And we love that. We applaud that. We, we rejoice in that reality that our Savior comes after the outcast, comes after the sinner, comes after the broken. He loves us. He accepts our invitations, though he should have nothing to do with our house and our table. But here in our text, we see plainly that these are not the only sorts of people that Jesus is moving towards. These are not the only uh, uh, sorts of invitations that he's accepting. Tax collectors and sinners, uh, the outcasts, the broken, the blind, the lame, even these cannot fully exhaust the love of God for us in Christ. It's going to envelop even more than just these. He's going to move with his heart, not just to those outside, but actually even towards those inside who think they're great, who think they're righteous, who think they're healthy. They're a different kind of sick. They're a different kind of outcast. He's going to move towards the Pharisee and the scribe and the lawyer and the religious leader and the guy who looks clean. See, we love Jesus going towards that, those people over there, but we forget he moves towards these people as well. Oh, sure, there's conflict, but he's still going towards them. You even see our tendency to kind of neglect this aspect of Jesus' ministry in um, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15. We're going to see this in weeks to come, but think about it. We titled that parable, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, Jesus didn't give it that title. We did. Now, why? Because we love the idea of the prodigal, the guy who went off and lived, you know, lasciviously, and he, he, he gave all his, 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 his dad's money for stuff, and, and, and then he comes back and goes, I'm sorry, and the father runs out, hugs him, you know, says, let's, let's throw a party. 
kills the fatted calf. Let's celebrate. We're so glad you're here. We go, yes, we love that. But we forget. That parable isn't just about the prodigal son. If you read carefully, it is also about the elder brother. The other son who's been there all along, fastidious in his religious duties and obeying his dad and taking care of his house. And that son is upset. He's got the self-righteous religious thing going on. Why would you? He went off and wasted all your money. Now you're throwing him apart. Where's my party? I never get no fatted calf. What's up with that? Standing outside, arms crossed. How are you going to eat with these sorts of people? Hmm? And what does God do in the parable as the father figure? He moves towards that son as well. He says, come on in. What are you doing out here? Your brother was dead. Now he's alive. What's mine has always been yours. Come celebrate. I can't. He moves towards both. The heart of God cannot be exhausted just by moving towards the sinner, the outcast, the, the, the wayward. He also moves towards the righteous, the self-righteous, the arrogant, the religious. So as I read verse 1 of Luke 14, the words just leapt off the page at me. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, he goes there. He got the invitation in the mail, and he goes there because he cares, because he has compassion even for this brother here. But even still, I don't think I've done justice to the move of Jesus in verse 1. Um, so I want to think about it just a tad bit more with you. Again, as we consider this idea of which invitations do we accept? Which parties do we go to? I, I wonder if you recall all that we've learned about guys like the Pharisees and the scribes up to this point in the Gospels, in Jesus' ministry. Their opinion of him, their plans and secret schemes for him. Uh, as in Luke 5, uh, was, as we saw with Levi there, so everywhere Jesus has gone, these men stand at odds with Jesus. Luke 4, if you recall, it's like the big opening moment for Jesus in his ministry there in, in, a, in a synagogue. And he says, you know, today in your presence, this reading has been fulfilled. And they all go, yes, hallelujah. And they lift the spirit fingers. No, they say, let's take him out and kill him. They run him off a cliff. At least they try. Who does this guy think he is? From Nazareth. He's Joseph's boy. Kidding me. He's delusional. Kill him. That's his history with these sorts of men. Or Luke 6, after a very similar Sabbath healing to the one that's in our text this morning. Um, the, the religious leaders there, we read, this is Luke 6, 11, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Well, Matthew's account of that same story, Matthew twelve fourteen, he fills it out a little bit further for us. He says, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. We want to kill him. They're already at that stage. They're all, they've already reached that level. 
in their relationship with Jesus at this point. And then so now here's what you have with this in the background, okay? Jesus walks from his front door to his mailbox, pulls out a few envelopes. Here's some junk mail. Here's some bills. Here's an invitation from a ruler of the the Pharisees. These people that want to kill him. He opens it up. On it, it says, hey, listen, Sabbath meal next Saturday, my house. Jesus, will you be the guest of honor? And he goes, are you kidding me? Of course. I'd love to. Because I love you. That's insane. That's incredible. Jesus is not naive. He knows what's going on here. In fact, it's, it's, it's crazy because even in our text, there are all these hints at, at, at what the, 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 the Pharisees and these guys are trying to do by inviting him here. It's a trap. They're trying to, to, to bait him, to, to, to trick him into some sort of theological or moral dilemma, really into healing on the Sabbath. Breaking their regulations or whatever it is. They're trying to bait his compassion. But you see this. Let me just show you. Jesus knows this is going on, but he's still moving towards them because they need his help. But verse 1, in the English, it says they were watching him carefully. But you can't catch the nuance that's there in the Greek. The the word behind uh, what's translated here, watching him carefully, uh, could also be translated watching maliciously. Lying in wait for. So they're sitting there. Oh, he actually showed up. He came. Man, we can't believe we tricked him. We got him. And then they're watching him. They're waiting to see if they can get uh, Jesus in some sort of a, a tough spot. They can incriminate him in some way, make him a breaker of the law. And what it seems they've tried to do, this is why many commentators would say, this guy with dropsy that shows up in verse 2, or really it's like edema, um, this guy that shows up in verse 2, they assume was invited by these guys to, again, bait Jesus' compassion. They know he can't, he can't resist a good healing. <laughs> They know that his heart's too big, that he wouldn't be able to pull away from a man in need. So we're going to put him right here. We're going to watch what Jesus does on the Sabbath when no work should be done. This isn't a matter of an emergency. This brother will be fine. You can heal him tomorrow. Not today. So they're watching. They're lying in wait. Jesus knows the intents of their heart. He knows what they're attempting to do to him. And here is the point, brothers and sisters. He moves towards these men anyways. He accepts their invitation. He sits around their table. He lets them scheme against them. And he loves them. It blows my mind. It humbles me to the dirt. One and the same time, doesn't it just kind of lift you with praise for, for, for our Savior, but then at the same time kind of lower you and go, oh my goodness. In our text, he's calling us to live that sort of life. To join in, in, in that life of love that accepts invitations for those, from those who, who maybe even mean ill to you. 
malicious intent. You go, you know what? Let me pray. Let me talk about it with my dad. Okay, yeah, it's on. Let's go. Because I know what's behind the, 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 the desire to hurt and the desire to, to, to take me down. It's a person who's hurting. It's a person who needs love. And I got my father. I can move towards them. That's crazy. I wonder if you move towards those who are after your hurt with love and compassion, or if you justify your burning of bridges and barricading of doors. I mean, just be real. If somebody, if you knew somebody literally was after you, hated you, spreading all this stuff about you on Facebook, then you get an invite to their dinner party in the mail. And what you do with that? If they're lucky, you're going to recycle it. Probably you're going to burn it. Just to spite them. Just to feel better about, mm, never would I go. Jesus hangs the thing up on his fridge. Marks the day on his calendar. And he went to dine. The house of the fair. He goes right in like a lamb led to the slaughter. He just walks in to the, to the lion's mouth. It's incredible. We have an invitation accepting Savior. The question I have for us then is, are we an invitation accepting church? Or do we kind of pick our people, pick and choose our thing, and go where it suits us best, the people that we like? Or are we that sort of man? Are we moved towards those that are even our enemies? Because Jesus has shown that sort of love for us. It's amazing. All right. Extending invitations now. Extending invitations. Um, As I did in the introduction, I want to flip this uh, idea and come at it from the other side. Uh, Now, not just talking about accepting invitations that have been extended to us, but this idea of, uh, extending invitations to others for parties that we're going to throw. With this now, we come to verses 12 through 14 in particular. So I want to read uh, a bit of that to you here again. Um, he said, this is verse 12, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. I'm going to stop it there for now, but we'll read more later. But now notice first, there in verse 12, that Jesus is specifically saying this. He's, he's specifically giving these instructions, though we get the privilege of overhearing. He's specifically giving these instructions to the man who had invited him. To the man who was sitting there going, I think I want to throw a party. Who do I want on my guest list? I think I'll send the invitations out to X, Y, and Z. And Jesus says, listen, let me talk to you for a moment about how you ought to uh, extend invitations, about who ought to be on your guest list. I wonder if you noticed who this man had put on his guest list. We're actually told in verse, I think it's verse 3 there, 
Jesus, as he's engaging with the people around the table, Luke just kind of slips in this detail for us. Jesus responded to the who? The lawyers and the Pharisees. So this ruler of the Pharisees invites and has all around his table lawyers and Pharisees. In other words, people just like him. (laughs) People that he runs with, people that he gets, people that get him, people that they like the same sorts of things. They're into the same sorts of TV shows. They have the same sorts of hobbies. They wear the same sorts of clothes. I like these guys. These are my people. They're around the table. And Jesus says, hold up. Unacceptable. Let's talk about the guest list for a moment. Let's talk about who makes the cut. Those who truly know the heart of God will find themselves moving in the exact opposite direction. Not who do I like, not all this self-regard and ooh, what's you know what's gonna look good for me. But start moving. Who needs to be here? Who needs to be around the table that we can bring the love of God to? Everything just changes when you meet, truly meet God and Christ. And that's what Jesus is going to lead us into here. Um, When you think about it, it, this really is, as I've already been alluding to in many ways, this really is the heartbeat of Jesus' ministry, right, while he's on the earth. Uh, I mentioned Levi and Luke 5. Uh, I mentioned how uh, Jesus accepted Levi's invitation. But I wonder if you remember how the whole thing started. You see, I don't think Levi would have ever expected that uh, a rabbi like Jesus would accept his invitation were it not for the fact that Jesus first came towards him with one. The courage that that this tax collector had to invite was a direct result of the mercy he had already received from God. This hope started welling out like maybe I could be accepted. Maybe I could hang with someone like Jesus. I want to look. Because if you remember, Jesus rolls up on him as he's there in his tax collector booth or whatever, doing his wicked thing. And Jesus says, come follow me. He extends the invitation to this brother. And now remember, this man is not going to add anything to Jesus' self-image. He's going to take. He doesn't have anything to offer Jesus, but Jesus wants to give. He knows he's full of need. And that's why Jesus invites him in. That's why Jesus invites him closer around the table. Come sit with me. If anything, as we saw, this is going to hurt his reputation. But Jesus isn't that immature. He's not that insecure. He knows his father so he can move towards the hurting. And those who will take from him with compassion. Now, I should say, as you're looking at... um, what Jesus says to this man in the, around the table there, this host. Uh, I, I don't think we're meant to take Jesus wooden literally. Okay, you get sometimes tripped up when you go, oh my gosh, he said, don't invite your family. Don't invite your friends. Don't, you know, you, you kind of struggle with, what does that even mean? I'm not allowed to have friends. I'm not allowed to have relationships. I'm sorry. I, you know, like, what is he trying to say? Now, I'm not in any way trying to let us off the hook. I don't think Jesus is trying to, I'm not, no way 
He's trying to get at the heart underneath all of our invitations, whether it's friend or family around the table or someone else. He's trying to get at the heart that underlies that inviting in the first place. He's trying to get us to go, wait a minute, why? Why do I populate my table the way that I do? Why do I want these people sitting here with me? Is it to get something from them or to give something to them? What's the fundamental orientation? What's the fundamental motivation? What's the heart behind this dinner party? And the people on the list. Is it to be served or to serve? Is it to get blessing from them or to be a blessing to them? Is it to extract some benefit for yourself or to offer some benefit to them? That's what he wants us to deal with. Have we gotten to a place where we're so full of God that we don't need from other people? In that fundamental deep way. I I know we need relationship. Absolutely. Yes. But when there's some need that God hasn't met, that we come at the people around the table with, we're just going to end up devouring them and ultimately destroying ourselves. It's crazy. As a, as a pastor, you see this sort of thing. I think as people, maybe more than others, I don't know. I think because people think, because I, you know, I, this is, well, I'm in ministry. I'm a minister. I represent Jesus. Sometimes the expectations that can only be put upon Jesus find their way, kind of migrate over to me. Or my wife. Well, they're the, they're the, they're the holy family. They're the one. And, and it, I, uh, Chris had me shot a, a, an interview over to me with, you guys probably know, I think I mentioned him last time. Uh, I love Zach S. Wine, the pastor of a small church somewhere. He's written an amazing book for pastors. And in this interview, they're talking about relationships that pastors have with other people and how it can sometimes be difficult. And I'll, I'll never forget what he said there. He, he said, listen, it, it is kind of hard because sometimes you can see what's happening. You know they're coming with all these things that they hope that you'll be for them. And then you can watch as they're let down when they realize you're a regular person too that needs to be loved. <laughs> that they're going to have to actually overlook some of your faults and failures and move towards you with grace just like they want you to do for them. That you need Jesus just as much as they do. That you're not able to stand in that place. You see, so we get into this idea that these people that I am going to surround myself with, they're going to fill me and they're not. Instead of just eating a meal with them, we're going to devour them. If we're not first finding this from our Savior, finding this from God. Now, I mentioned this idea of what I think is is hyperbole in the text to get at the heart. And we see Jesus do this just to give you another brief example uh, why I don't think he's intending this to be wooden literal here. uh, Like we can't invite family, friend or something like that. Um, You you remember, well, we'll get there probably in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Luke 14 verses that follow. He says, listen, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to hate your mother, hate your father, hate your, you know, hate everyone. And you go. What? Did Jesus just say that? He's not asking us to, to contradict the second great commandment. He is, though, trying to get us to fully embrace the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. He has to be first love. He has to be the one on top, or you will never get to the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
That's the point. I think that's kind of what he's doing here. He's saying, listen to me, if you are approaching relationships with this sort of what can I get out of it, you will never get it right. It has to first be, listen, I don't, I, I come to my God, I eat at his table in Christ like we'll do around the communion table this morning. I eat there, I feed myself there, and then you want to know what happens? I am now full and I am free, and it no longer matters who is around the table, whether it's family or friend, whether it's someone who will reciprocate or not. Maybe it's just people that will take from me. Maybe it's just people that will abuse me and will talk my ear off through the night, never ask once how I'm doing. All that. Maybe that's what it is. But you know what? I have Jesus with me. It doesn't matter anymore. The orientation of our hearts is so different because we have this vertical thing going on with our Savior. That's what he's trying to get at, I think. That's what he's wanting us to consider. That's what he's wanting us to press in. In fact, what I do think he is saying is that when you really taste the grace of God for you and Jesus, there will be a sort of propulsion outward toward the broken toward the outcast, toward the poor, toward the lame. You'll want to make friend and family of people that you up to this point would have avoided. You see that? Oh, they're a burden. They're difficult. I mean, they talk behind my back. I don't want to. Mm-mm. They said, come on in. Are you kidding me? It's the least I could do after what my Savior's done for me. As we consider how we're doing with these things, I find Tim Chester's words um, helpful. I will continue to promote, I forgot to bring it, A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. If I can have everyone in the church read that book, please. It's amazing. It's amazing. It talks about the meals of Jesus and how it's all that's embodied there and the mission of God in the middle of it. But here's what he says. He says, meals can be a visual representation of our hearts. If our hearts are concerned for position, honor, status, or approval, then that will be reflected in our dining etiquette. Consider how your meals express your vision for life. Think about who's invited, how they're served, what you hope to achieve, and the layout of your home. Do they express the vision of the kingdom of God? Is your home open? Is there space around the table for people that aren't like you? that take from you, that you don't like necessarily? Is there space around the table for them? Do the, does the mission and the values um, of your home, does it match the values of the kingdom of God? Or is it oriented around your own kingdom? you got the Pharisees and the lawyers around the table with you because these are my people. I like them. Is the grace of God for you propelling you out to people you never thought you'd hang out with? Now, third and finally, learning the way of Jesus. The question all of this has been leading to, and the question we need to deal with now uh, before we close, uh, as we try to kind of land the plane, is how do we do this? I mean, up to this point, largely I've just kind of held out the commands of Jesus, the example of Jesus, but how, how do we do this? What sustains this sort of life? How do we kind of get the stamina that can actually move towards enemy with love and not just become monster, 
uh, you know, monstrous in the process where we get misshapen and gross because of the hurt and all this and deformed. How do we move towards in love and look actually not less like our God, but more? How do you do this? Where does this come from? What suggestions to move forward? Well, I've got three suggestions for us. One of them, the first one we'll look at, is explicitly given to us by Jesus in our text. And then after that one, I'll give you just two more to consider and we'll draw things to a close. The first suggestion is this. Remember where we're headed. Remember where we're headed. Um, When we first hear Jesus saying uh, that we will be blessed precisely because a person cannot repay us, um, it's my sense, if you're anything like me, that we first respond with kind of the head scratching, the ear, you know, a little squeak thing on it. Come again? Like, are you kidding me? Jesus is saying, when you invite someone to your house and all they can do is take from you, they leave a big mess and then they go on their way. He said, blessed are you. You go, are you kidding? Is that not contrary to everything that we feel and and, and the way that we just naturally behave and approach relationships? We kind of say, do we hear you rightly? Well, we heard him rightly. But the question is, did we hear him fully? Because he goes on to explain what he means. Why he would say, blessed are you. And this is everything. If you want (laughs) this sort of life of love to be sustained, this is where Jesus directs us to. Look at what he says in uh, verses 13 and 14 again. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Come again, Jesus. Make sense of that, Jesus. What do you mean? Here he goes. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus says, listen. At the end of the day, I'm not talking about, I'm not saying you're blessed because of what's taken from you. I'm not an ascetic saying, flog me again, and there's some sort of virtue in, 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 in uh, you know, a lack of joy and possessions and all this. No, that's not what he's He's actually saying, I want you to see what will truly be given to you. To, in, in the midst of all that's taken, you lose sight of what will be given. Not from other people, but from your God. And not here and now in the immediate moment, but in the age to come. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the point to press in on. Do we know where we're headed? Do we believe in the resurrection of the just? Do we live as if the resurrection is real? As if eternity is real? If this life is all that there is? then it absolutely makes sense. Surround yourselves with people you like, with people who will add to your bank account and add to your image and add to your ego and all of that. Absolutely, if this life is all that there is, that life makes the most sense. But if there is a resurrection 
And this life is just a blip on the screen. And that life goes on forever. And he is saying, <laughs> you have a father whose watchful eye is making note of every sacrifice, every cup of water given to someone in need in his name. He knows the wrongs done to you. He knows the way that you've emptied your bank account for this person, wrote the check for that person, extended an invitation for that person, accepted an invitation to go there. He knows how it's hurt. And in the end, he will make every wrong right. He will fill every longing. He'll give you joy unimaginable. He says, if that's the sort of world that you live in, a world where the resurrection is coming, then Jesus is showing us the way of life that makes the most sense. Just this overflowing gift. You're investing in a stock market, you might say, in a market that Wall Street knows nothing about. Economy of heaven. As you invite those who hurt and take and you press towards them in love. Again, this is precisely the sort of thing that we see sustaining Jesus. He actually throws his own dinner party. I don't know if you caught that. The Last Supper, right? We're moving towards Easter, Good Friday. Seems appropriate to think about what's called the Last Supper. His last meal. He says, come on, I want to gather you all in. And then he goes, listen, all you guys are just going to take from me and then leave me. Thank you very much. <laughs> Every one of you, they're going to strike the shepherd. You're going to go. Oh, and you, you're going to betray me. But come on in. Let's eat. Let's sing. And then he does something even more surprising, right? He, he gets down. He takes up the servant's towel and he washes these men's feet, his disciples' feet. These people who just take and take and take. Listen to me, when you are having, when you have like a deadline or you have something stressful going on in your own life, is it not that the last thing you're thinking about is someone else's needs? Is it not just kind of like, I've got enough to worry about. I can't worry about you right now. The cross is coming. Now, Jesus, my father's got me so I can have you. Let me get down and watch. Now, what sustains him though? See, John's account of this actually explicitly tells us, and it has to do with knowing where you are headed. John 13, 2 through 5. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, and here it is, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, knowing where you're headed, Rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I don't know if you caught it, but Judas is there. Judas's feet are being cleaned. Jesus, the, the, the God of the universe, wipes the muck out from between the toes of the one who will in a few hours betray him to death for a few pieces of silver. And you say, what sustains that kind of love? How do you get a table like that in your home? Jesus, knowing 
that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, was able to do these things. He knew about the resurrection of the just, in other words. And so, what's a few more hours of self-sacrifice and love here? Are we living our lives in such a way that they can only be made sense of in light of the resurrection of the just? People look at you and go, man, that's crazy unless eternity is real. I would never hang out with those sorts of people unless eternity is real. Jesus is real. The resurrection is real. Is that what they say? Just kind of living like the world. Is there anything crazy about our lives? The real power comes from this. Knowing where we're headed. Knowing the one who has his eye on us, who will make it all right in the end. Suggestion number two. I don't know what that gesture was, but suggestion number two. Remember where we've come from. Remember where we've come from. I'm going to have to go quickly on these last two and then bring things to a close. Remember where we've come from. Uh, one of the things that will move us towards enemy, move us towards outcast, broken, needy, the people who only take is remembering and recalling that we, in fact, are those people to God. And he moved towards us. One of the big problems with the religious and the reason why they lack compassion is because they don't think that they need his, they don't see it. They are bartering with God. They are in, a, in kind of an exchange with him. I'll get, there, so therefore, they operate with everyone else that way. They think they can get into God's favor by doing X, Y, and Z. He goes, you don't get it. You are sick. You are the cripple. You are the lame. That's why I'm around the table with you. And when your eyes are open to that reality, it propels you out in love for enemy and, 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 and broken and lame and cripple and people who have nothing to offer because you know God. I was reminded as I was preparing this of that exhortation Paul gives to the Roman church in Romans uh, f- uh, 15 verse 7 when he says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You catch that? He says, okay. I mean, this is insane. The, the, the vast expanse of that exhortation is off the charts. He says, okay, listen, let's first think about the welcome of God for you. This is no stingy thing. This is no kind of surrounding uh, himself with people that he likes, with people who please him. This is, come to the table, my enemies. Come to the table, broken sinners. That's the welcome that God has shown to you. And then, and then what happens is, is Paul flips that on us and he says, now, here's what I want you to do. Take that same welcome and extend it to others. And of course, underneath all of this is the presupposition that we even understand what his welcome is like. That we get it. We were the rebel. We were the wayward. We were the outside. We were the one. And to the degree that we get that, see that, I think we'll also find this ability, this power coming from Christ to move towards those who are our own enemies, who've hurt us. We shed our own blood for them. As Jesus lays out the welcome mat in front of the kingdom of God for me. Suggestion number three. Remember where Jesus still is. 
here's what I mean by this. Um, Jesus, by way of his spirit, is still sitting around these sorts of tables today. He's still around the table with his enemies. He's still around the table with, with those that are needy and broken and lame and crippled and just take and have nothing to offer. That's where Jesus is. One of the things we have to realize, brothers and sisters, is that if we close the door on, uh, in our hearts on these sorts of people, then we actually are also keeping Christ out of our lives. Do you get that? We're not just keeping the enemy and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the cripple and the lame and the needy out of our lives. We're keeping Christ out of our lives because those are the sorts of people he's moving towards still today. Those are the people he wants around his table. That's where he sits. Those are the tracks that he still runs in. And we got to realize when we shut the door on those people, we shut the door on Christ. So we ought not to be surprised. Why do I feel so discontent and dissatisfied in Jesus? Where is Jesus? Well, you close the door on him. He's on the same mission he's always been. He wants to involve you in it. But if you won't go with him, off he goes. But the flip side is also true when you open. When you open the door and you open your heart. The people, you, everything in you, your skin's crawling, even thinking about it right now. When you open the door, when you put that invite in the mail, when you accept that invitation, even though you want to throw open your mouth at the thought. You know what? You're not just opening the door to this person. You're opening the door to Christ. You better pull out a chair around your table, not just for this person, but for Jesus, because he's there. And even though they may take and take and take, eat and make a mess, leave you with nothing, you will be feasting in your fellowship with Jesus. He's there. There is a fellowship with Christ that you will not, you will not get any other way than this. It's where he is. So I'll leave you with one final thought. I just want you to pray and consider. Think about, ask God, one person. We've all got one. we all got one in the closet somewhere, you know, with the dartboard on their face. You know, you all got one of those. Probably. The enemy. Maybe it's just someone who's just a burden. They annoy you to no end. <laughs> not another phone call, not another day. I can't. No. I just think, pray, and ask God, what does moving towards them look like? What does it look like? It might just be, again, there are abusive situations. Ian talked about some of that last week. I'm not talking about that. It might just be you open your heart to pray for them. Okay? But I am thinking, man, ex- extend an invitation. Accept an invitation, answer an email that you've been letting sit to kind of give that passive-aggressive sign. Things aren't cool, right? Move towards the mask. God, what does it look like? Because I'll tell you something. Jesus is already there. He's waiting for you to catch up. Let's pray. God, who is sufficient for these things? Certainly not me. But we know that you are. And... um, 
as we see you, as we embrace uh, your work in our lives, as we accept the grace <laughs> that you show us, your movement towards us, your accepting of our invitations, your extending of your own invitations to us, God, we find ourselves able to grow in that towards others. I pray that you would help us. You're an invitation accepting and extending God. We want to be an invitation accepting and extending church. Would you help us in Jesus' name? Amen.